It's a dependable sign the fantasy season has really started. Labor drafted this past weekend, and we have two of those drafters next on Baseball HQ Radio. by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March the 10th and show number 8 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Steve Gardner of USA Today, and Jason Collette of Rotowire and Baseball Prospectus, two labor drafters. We'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about second base value at the top of the draft. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at St. Louis first base prospect Matt Adams, and in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about Adam Dunn and the late careers of bigger players. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Ioannis Cespedes hit his first home run. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League and leading off the National League and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Bad news in Milwaukee. We'll start with Nick. Uh, Corey Hart, for the second year in a row, is going to miss most of spring training and probably not start the season because of an injury. He's got a torn meniscus. He's going to have arthroscopic surgery. And uh, that kind of opens up a spot in the outfield they thought they had taken care of with Ryan Braun overturning that suspension on his appeal. So what happens now in that Milwaukee outfield? Well, I think more, more important, let's talk about what's, what happened with Corey Hart. Corey Hart said after that surgery that when they went in there, they found it was a bigger mess than they thought it was. Uh, and I, I don't think that adds anything to the uh, to the recovery time in terms of Corey Hart. Um, but it may knock him down a bit in terms of drafts, and I think that's the reason to talk about Corey Hart at the moment. I mean, here's a guy that Ron Chandler thought had first-round potential in terms of his production this year, and now we're talking about an injury, and he's going to miss the start of the season and, uh, you know, it, it miss most of spring training, so what's that going to do to him? And I, You know, my reaction here is that if, if that if the news knocks Corey Hart down in your draft, go for it. I mean, here's a guy that we looked at as having uh, 30-plus home run potential, uh, and the knee injury is not going to really cut into that much of his season. We're looking at maybe missing two weeks at this point. So uh, Corey Hart really could be in, in the, 
position to, to go back and have a, a great year. Uh, so I would say go for it. The the potential is there. We really haven't knocked our projections down that much on him. We're projecting 26 home runs, 75 RBIs, 281 batting average, and just a little slight reduction in the total amount of playing time. So uh, I think you're kind of talking about missing Corey Hart for two weeks, uh, and then hopefully he'll be good to go. Also a decent stolen base guy, though, Nick, and uh, knee surgery of any kind is always problematic for guys who run a lot, and meniscus surgery in particular because it's uh, – caused by that jarring motion of, of running hard. Could we uh, be looking at a severe downgrade of his stolen base potential? Yeah, I think we need to look. We do need to look at that. I mean, stolen base potential may not be uh, be what it was, uh, say, a year ago. We're, we've got downgraded that now to, I think, nine stolen bases for the year instead of, uh, uh, instead of the possibility of, uh, well, we, we were only predicting about 10 before, I think. So, uh, Corey Hart's stolen bases were, were actually declining a bit. So, uh, I don't think that's why you buy him at this point in his career. That does, as I said earlier, Nick, open up some uh, playing time in the Milwaukee outfield. They did get Ryan Braun back, but now with Hart out, uh, there's going to be some cascading effects. Guys like Niger Morgan, Carlos Gomez, Norichika Aoki, the Japanese import, and even Corey Patterson will be vying for at-bats. Who's the front runner to get them, and does it make any difference in valuing them for draft? Well, I think that that's the big question down at the end is it doesn't make any difference. I mean, my guess is what they're going to do is, is kind of uh, we're talking about only a couple of weeks here. So my guess is what they're going to do is they're going to put the hot hand out there and see who can actually produce during those first couple of weeks. And, and if somebody's hot, they'll stay in. If they're not, uh, they won't. It's the kind of thing that uh, when we were, when I was at spring training, uh, we read a, read a quote from Delman Young that said the managerial change last year really helped him because he didn't feel like he was auditioning every day for a playing spot. My guess is what's going to be happening in Corey Hart's replacement is they're going to be auditioning every day for a playing spot. A guy goes out there and goes 0 for 4, he may not be in the lineup the next day. Yeah, I like Nigel Morgan in center field now. He's a good stolen base guy. Carlos Gomez may be intriguing because he has the, the big speed, of course, always an excellent runner and a plus defender. And he even swatted a few home runs towards the end of last year. But, of course, he swings and misses so much that there's real batting average danger with Carlos Gomez Really, it doesn't look like anybody beyond Morgan is a guy to, to look at seriously, at least until the very end of a National League draft. Yeah, I think I would agree. He's uh, certainly uh, probably the only guy worth looking at in this uh, as a replacement in this situation. Nick, we've already talked uh, during this spring training about the thinness of first base in the National League. Joey Votto is a, obviously a very elite-level player. And then after that, it's, uh, boy, take your choice and, and pick them. But uh, one of the top guys in a lot of drafts has been the Mets' Ike Davis, and now it turns out he's been named as possibly having Valley Fever, which took a lot of playing time away from Connor Jackson a couple of years ago. What's the story here? Yeah, you know, and Ike Davis says he feels fine, so the, the Mets are kind of monitoring that. Ike Davis certainly looked like a guy ready to take a, a big step up this year. I mean, we uh, – we, in the baseball forecaster talked about an upside of 30 home runs, and here's a guy who looks like he could hit about 280 uh, and 80-some uh, RBI, so that's certainly nothing to sneeze at. Uh, I, I just, I, I guess my uh, probably Ike Davis was going a little high in drafts anyway simply because of the thinness of that position and his potential. Uh, I just uh, guess I, I would warrant caution at this point with Ike Davis. I mean, we don't know right now what's going to play out with this uh, with this Valley Fever situation. It certainly did uh, cut into Connor Jackson's uh, playing time and maybe even his career a few years ago. So uh, I'd take, a, I think, kind of a, uh, a wait-and-see approach with Ike Davis, see how things play out in spring training, and I certainly would not draft him too early. 
Nick, does this enhance the value at all of Lucas Duda? He figures to get some first base time if uh, Ike Davis can't go because of this illness. Yeah, I think it does enhance Duda's value. I mean, Duda's a guy that looked like he could uh, be ready to take a step up, and, and certainly this looks like it could give him some more playing time. So Lucas Duda is certainly someone to keep your eye on. Doug Dennis of BaseballHQ.com, our bullpen expert, had his annual sleepers column this week and named Sergio Romo in San Francisco. Why does he like Sergio Romo so much? Well, you know, Sergio Romo, you talk about the, the San Francisco bullpen and figure Brian Wilson's a guy out there and uh, he's entrenched as a closer and certainly nothing's going to happen. And so, But Sergio Romo is a really top-notch pitcher. I mean, you look at this guy's skills. We're talking about a guy who strikes out more than 11 batters per nine innings, a command ratio Strikeouts divided by walks, 7.6. Keeps the ball in the park. A expected earned run average of 2.5. Here is a guy with with big-time skills. Uh, And so certainly someone you could could take on your team, even if he were not the closer. Uh, But there's there's a little bit of problem that uh, Wilson has a a bulky elbow. He missed a bunch of games in August and September. Uh, We're not sure he's 100% yet. So I would certainly look at Sergio Romo as someone who could uh, could uh, be a very, very valuable bullpen contributor. I also like Romo for another reason, Nick, and that is he's going to be pitching late in games. San Francisco is not going to score a lot, and they have good starting pitching. So you have to figure that's a formula for a lot of close tie, tie. So you have to figure that's a formula for tie games or close games late. This guy could easily pick up some vulture wins. Oh, very definitely. A lot of a good vulture win possibility, I think, for Romo. Uh, and as uh, you know, as Doug said in his column, here's a guy that if he if he suddenly gets the role, could be a Craig Kimbrell type uh, closer instantly. With all of those strikeouts, that's right. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, the starting pitching uh, columnist at BaseballHQ.com, also had his sleeper column, and he named Cincinnati starter Mike Leake. Yeah, Mike Leake, I think, looks pretty good. I mean, uh, Mike Leake doesn't have the, the kind of stuff that would look you would look at as an upper rotation starting pitcher, but uh, he probably is a guy who hasn't peaked yet. I mean, here's a guy that uh, pitched extremely well the first time through lineups. He got progressively worse as the game went on, uh, but a real command artist in the second half walked only 1.8 batters per nine innings, a, a 48% ground ball rate. Uh, the thing that kept his ERA up was a, a huge 19% home run per fly rate. So uh, that, that is likely to come down just on its own. So I would think Mike Leake is someone that you could pick up at the end of a draft uh, who may, in fact, I mean, you don't expect this guy to suddenly go from a number five starter to a number one starter, uh, but he could be pretty solid. Stephen Nickrand also mentioned the right-hander in Atlanta, Chris Medlin, who's going to be undervalued. Of course, he's coming off an injury, may not even make the rotation coming out of camp. But before he got hurt, he was showing some pretty decent skills, and that brought him to the attention of Ron Chandler in his annual draft radar alert for pitchers. Yeah, Chris Medlin is someone I think to really look at. Uh, he's, he's probably not going to go very high in drafts and, and or be very expensive in drafts simply because he doesn't have a role to start with. Uh, we've got a very young uh, hot starting rotation in Atlanta. Uh, it looks like Chris Medlin is, is someone who's going to work back into the bullpen, uh, be kind of a swing guy to start the season. Uh, but 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 the skills are excellent. Before his injury, he was looking like a, a very uh, a very solid uh, middle rotation kind of starter. Six point nine dom, one point eight control, forty three percent ground ball rate. Uh, a guy who looked as though he could be someone you could count on in your starting rotation. So I think Chris Medlin's a guy to kind of pick up at the end of your draft. Yeah, that uh, dom and control combines for about a 3.8 command ratio, 3.8 strikeouts for every walk, which is just excellent. So Chris Medlin could be a fine. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. 
Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Great to see all these games, Patrick. It is, yeah. It's real exciting to have XM Radio. If you happen to be able to listen to games on XM or the Extra Innings Package is now starting to show games every day. It's a terrific time of year. And, of course, drafts are starting a lot of places. The experts' drafts, we're going to have two guys on from the uh, Labor Draft last weekend, Steve Gardner and Jason Collette, talking about how Labor went this year. But uh, let's talk about some American League players, Matt. And, first of all, Carl Crawford coming off a bad year as it was, now has had surgery. It looks like he won't start the year with the club, likely on the DL, maybe as as late as May. So uh, what does that do for that Red Sox lineup? Well, certainly weakens it and really creates opportunity for Cody Ross as a sleeper. He's got a 126 power index last year, very consistently shown above average power. A little skewed more. He likes to hit left-handers, but with the green monster out there, you never know how some of these pull hitters can adjust and take advantage of that. So Ross is going to get the biggest benefit of playing time, and you also see some playing time for Ryan Sweeney. Sweeney's not really much of a fantasy uh, effect here as he doesn't have great power or speed, but if you do have on base as a category, he's been uh, 340 or better on base percentage each of the last four years. And in simulations, he's also a very good fielder with a great arm. So he has some of those quiet skills that don't translate to typical roto, but if you have some other formats, uh, he could be of value that way. Yeah, Cody Ross is not going to help your batting average too much. I think he peaked at around uh, 270 in his in uh, when we're only talking about full-time seasons. He actually hit well over 300 in a short season in Florida a few years ago. But his XBAs are usually right in the mid-260s. That's about as much as you can expect from Cody Ross. Uh, I disagree just a little bit because he's always played in difficult hitters' parks in Florida and San Francisco. I think with the opportunity to play in Fenway with that short left field wall, I think uh, Fenway has one of the highest single rates out there. So uh, with less foul territory and the short fence and left, I'm not saying he's going to lead the league in batting average, but he may not be a hindrance there. He may actually contribute somewhat. That's good to keep in mind. Uh, One of the big stories in baseball and fantasy baseball over the last few years has been the movement of Vernon Wells. Of course, he had that giant contract, which Toronto managed to trade away to the Angels of Anaheim. Now he's there, looks like the starter in left field, but they've got a million outfielders. So two questions. Is there any chance he can bounce back from a pretty horrible year last year? He had 25 home runs, but only 66 uh, RBI. He only hit 218 and had nine steals. Is there any chance he can bring up the batting average, maybe get into the 80s of RBIs, get into double-digit steals again, or is he going to be looking over his shoulder at Mike Trout? I think he will be looking over his shoulder, and I think he can do better than he did in 2011. We always say once a player uh, displays a skill, he owns it. Last year's expected batting average was 252 because he had a very low 22% hit rate. Historically, that's been in the 27, 28% range. So there is batting average upside with Wells. I don't think he's going to hit, you know, in the 270s or 300 like he did back in 2008. But he certainly should improve on that. Uh, there are some things to be concerned about. His hit, or his contact rate was 83%, was 3% lower. He was less patient at the plate, only a 4% walk rate. So his, his eye ratio just plummeted last year. And that's typical of a struggling hitter who hasn't been through these difficult times in a while, though they really start pressing. Some other things to like is a 48% fly ball rate and a power index of 109. So we could see uh, the power staying there as well with the higher fly ball rate. And he still shows better than average speed. So I think he will get those steals. 
as long as he stays healthy, he should have playing time and be a decent outfielder. Yeah, if he'd have got on base a little more often, he might have actually stolen double digits last year, Matt. He had a 15% stolen base opportunities, which is relatively high for a guy of his kind of stolen base caliber. It, the problem was you can't steal first base. Right, and his walk rate historically has been, you know, 7%, give or take. He's had a couple years of 8% compared to 4 That's a lot of opportunities over the course of a season. So that's why there's some hidden value here. People are going to look at 2011 and discount Wells, when in reality he may be a guy that he has a proven track record. Yes, he's getting a little bit older, but he's a guy who could come back to a level close to his 2010. More like 2009 probably be a better indicator. He was a $15 player in 2009, and just to reinforce what you said, uh, the last three years before 2011, his on-base percentages were in the 330, 340 range. He was down to 313 in 09. Last year, 248. So something's going on there, and if he can just right that ship, could be a, a, a hidden source of value. Also could be a hidden source of runs. That's a pretty good lineup as well. Staying in uh, Anaheim, Matt, the pitcher Jared Weaver had a Cy Young caliber year, which immediately sparks everybody to think, hey, wait a minute, perhaps this guy was too good and there's a big regression coming. What do you think? Well, that's what I think exactly. Last year, even though his ERA was 241, his expected ERA was 368. He had a very low 26% hit rate and a very high 80% strand. His strikeout rate per nine innings actually went down 1.7 batters per nine innings. That's a huge drop. He did maintain excellent control, which made him effective. He posted a nice 3.5 command, which is strikeouts to walks. The problem with Weaver is that his strikeout rate went down and his fly ball rate continues to rise. It's 49%. And you're just really flirting with disaster there. His home run per fly ball was low at 6%. You know, league average is usually around 10%. When you're putting the ball in the air that much uh, as a pitcher, letting it be put in the air like that, you're really running a very high risk of your your ERA skyrocketing, and that's what his expected ERA is reflecting. So we definitely don't think he's going to repeat the great year he had in 2011. We think it's going to be much more like 2009-2010, where he was a good pitcher, not a great one. You know, Matt, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jared Weaver with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball, and he asked an interesting question about this home run per fly ball issue. He said, you know, for the last four years, Jared Weaver's had a 6%, 7% home run for fly ball rate. At some point, don't we have to give him credit for having a 6 or 7% home run for fly ball rate and that it isn't necessarily guaranteed to regress to a 10% league-wide uh, standard? I, I would think so. I don't know the data on that exactly to prove that. But, yeah, since it's been such a long history, you could argue that. But still, he was 8% home run per fly ball rate each of the three previous years. So there's definitely uh, some home runs coming if he just goes back to normal without that 10%. He gives up uh, you know, one home run per nine innings on average. Last year, only 0.8. So that's the reason why we think his ERA is certainly not going to be under three in 2012 because just going back to even his own established home run per fly ball rate, it still caused for a large increase in his earned run average. Huh, I, w I wouldn't guess a large increase. Uh, speaking of guys who had terrific years, James Shields looked really good last year. He was almost a $30 starter with a 282 ERA and a whip that was barely over one in 249 and a third innings. A great year. Of course, the previous year, by the way, when I owned him, 518, 146 whip, 203 innings, and a minus $10 pitcher. So I guess the question, Matt, is, I imagine you expect that James Shields is going to regress somewhat, but is the truth somewhere between those two extremes? Somewhere between the two extremes, but much closer to 2011. 
In 2011, he had a 26% hit rate and 78% strand, which would tell you that the ERA would be much higher. But he actually was much better at getting the ball on the ground, 46% ground ball rate, and he lowered his fly ball rate to 35%. Here's a guy who has a very high home run per fly ball average, about 11% over the last five years. So Shields, we think, uh, despite the luck factors, the hit rate, and the strand rate, because of the improvement in his ground ball rate, and he's maintained his strikeout rate and his low walk rate, we think that he'll be okay. Probably an ERA around 315, 320, something like that. And if you look at his second half last year, 321 ERA, a little lower strikeout rate, uh, but again, the increased ground balls. So 320 is about where you want to bid. And the thing about Shields, though, he's very reliable. In 2010, when he did struggle, he had basically the same skill set. He just was very unlucky with the hit rate and very unlucky with the strand rate. So this is a guy who's very consistent uh, to be in the ERA just above three. Even though his surface stats don't show it, his skills have been very consistent over the past several years. And his opposition on base percentage went way down from 341, which was a career high in 2010, his unlucky year, all the way down to 270 last year. And again, the truth probably lies somewhere in between. And a ground, high ground ball guy is going to have uh, an advantageous ERA, but he is going to suffer a little bit in whip, depending on uh, how his walk control rate fares. So uh, James Shields could be a pretty decent buy this year, again, based on people thinking he can't do it twice in a row. Probably he can't, but even uh, even if he falls back a little bit, he's still going to be pretty good. Well, and that's the question. Are they going to bid for a 282 ERA? They're going to overprice him. If they look at some, at 2010 when he had a 5 ERA and say, I'm not going to go the extra buck, you're going to be able to roster him at a very fair price. Matt, Tommy Hunter was the odd guy out in the Texas rotation, so they moved him off to Baltimore where he had a, fairly poor year. Is there any chance that he's going to be one of these guys who rebounds once he figures it out? Well, he's one of those guys that people think are just have to figure it out and he'll turn it around soon. We think the opposite. Even though he has a great strikeout to walk ratio of 3.2, his strikeout rate is only 4.8 batters per nine innings. We've seen pitchers that can succeed. It's difficult, but you can succeed with a low strikeout rate, but you've got to keep the ball on the ground an inordinate amount of time, about 50% of the time or more. He's not even close at 41% of the time. So here's a guy who doesn't put batters away, but also doesn't have an extreme ground ball tendency to make it work for him. The two things you need when you have a low strikeout rate, excellent control, which Harrison has, but you also got to keep the ball on the ground, which he doesn't necessarily do any better than league average. So we think you're going to struggle here and have another ERA up around five. And a 1.3 home run per nine rate last year with the Orioles. That's probably uh, can't be attributed so much to the park because Texas is a home run park as well. Absolutely. So either way, it's not going to work. And he doesn't have too many dominant starts. He doesn't have a lot of disasters. His PQS dominance disaster is 18% both ways. So even though he doesn't really kill you in any starts, he doesn't really dominate either. So the question is, what are you really getting here? Consistent mediocrity, and that's not going to help your ratio categories at all, or your strikeouts, for that matter. Or your wins, probably, because a guy who's just not being dominant in that many games is not going to factor in that many games. So here's, here's a guy who you can look at a lot of positive factors. If someone just uses strikeout-to-walk ratio, they're going to find themselves with a disappointing uh, staff member in 2012. Matt, the Rangers uh, hired Joe Nathan as a free agent to take over their closer role. Famously, they're going to put Neftali Feliz into the starting rotation, as they did with Ogando last year. And uh, 
late last season they picked up Mike Adams in a trade from San Diego, and Mike Adams looks like the, kind of the odd man out here because of Nathan's arrival. But Mike Adams is a pretty good pitcher who deserves a, a good long look. He's always the odd man out, and he always posts fantastic stats. The highest ERA he's had in the last three years is 1.76. This guy's amazing. He strikes out more than a batter per inning. He walks less than two batters per nine innings. His command rate last year was 5.3, and his base performance value, which is a summary of all of his skills, was 140. Anything in triple digits is excellent. What I like about Adams here is a lot of people, he's not a secret anymore, is a Lima middle reliever, the middle reliever you take late in the draft to help your whip and ERA. But what he has here, I think, is a real opportunity for some saves. While Joe Nathan's skills were excellent, he had a 47% fly ball rate last year. And moving to Texas in the Texas heat, uh, I think there's some warning signs here. He's coming off the elbow injury. He is getting older. And even though his skills say everything is great, your gut instinct has to say a guy with a 47% fly ball rate in Texas for the first time coming off of a severe elbow injury is a high risk candidate. And I think it's very likely that Adams could see, you know, five to 10 saves easily throughout the course of the year. So I would bid the extra dollar on Adams, not just because he has great skills as a middle reliever to help your ratios, but also as a secondary save source. Might not be a bad guy to pick up some wins either. He had five last year in relief and uh, that Texas team is pretty solid. I agree. The other thing about Nathan is his ERA on the road last year was 750 versus 304 at Target Field. It's just going from the the best pitcher park in the league to one of the worst is is just a recipe for disaster. If Nathan was a ground ball pitcher, and he has in the past gotten a ground ball rate over 40%, I'd feel much better. But he's hit 47% each of his last two full seasons in the majors with his fly ball rate, and that's very scary in Texas. Something I like to point out about Adams, uh, you know, people look at the strand rate and they automatically say anything over 70 is lucky, anything under 70 is unlucky, and anything way off 70 is unsustainable. But we proved a couple of years ago that, in fact, for relief pitchers, because they have a different job description, a strand rate much higher than average is sustainable. And listen to these since 2008 for Mike Adams, 82, 90, 84, 87. So this guy really has the knack for making sure that the base runners that he puts on are not scoring. He's been helped in that probably if he had base runners on a bad outing, he had the team's closer coming in behind him to, to mop up, and Heath Bell did a good job of that, I'm sure, last year, and we know that Naftali Feliz did a good job in that regard for Texas. But, boy, those are really high strand rates, and they augur very well for low ERAs. This is a sustainable skill for a short outing reliever like Mike Adams. Mike Adams is also very well balanced. In simulation formats, he's an incredible weapon because he equally retires lefties and righties each year pretty well. I did a column about Stratomatic cards, and I said Mike Adams has got the same equivalent statistics as Justin Verlander. And in a simulation format, in the playoffs, those relievers can be very valuable because you can use them most every game. So comparing him to Justin Verlander would probably never occur on any other site or any other podcast. But when you look at their statistics to try to illustrate everyone's going to be jumping all over Verlander, to understand you're getting those kind of skills with Mike Adams should really open some people's eyes. And, of course, it's advantageous in many sim games because you're not obliged to use actual major league closers as closers. You can use anybody who's got decent skills. 
that is the case in many. I know in Diamond Mine that's the case. Stratomatic does have a closer rating formula, but even still, it's a narrow. It's a, a certain situation with a very close game. So, like a three-run lead, that wouldn't come into effect. So you could use them in a closer in that situation. But uh, relievers with these incredible skills, Adams, Sergio Romo, are really effective weapons in rotisserie and simulation. They're still the most undervalued asset out there in the game today. Talking of closers, Matt, in Detroit, Jose Valverde had kind of a season for the ages, uh, 49 saves, a 224-119. He's worth $32 as a rotisserie player. And, of course, the question is, can he do it a, a second time, or in his case, actually a fourth time, because he's had similar years in the past in 2007 and 2008, well above 40 saves. So the question is, do you pay for it in 2012? Absolutely not. This is a great guy's name to call out in an auction, in my opinion. His ERA was 224 last year, but his expected ERA was 375 because he had only a 26% hit rate. His strikeout rate has gone down each of the last five seasons. Still not bad at 8.6 strikeouts per nine innings, but the last two years he's walked more than four batters per nine innings, so he's barely on a 2-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Last year, he also benefited from a low home run per fly ball rate of 6%. And we look at his history, he does meet the league mean of 10%. His base performance value that we look at here at Baseball HQ as a summary of his skills has gone down each of the last four years. And last year, he reached a career high in games and innings pitched at age 33. I think this is a guy who will be very overrated, way too expensive in most leagues for the value he'll return. Yeah, and I, something that jumped out at me, Matt, on Valverde was in 2010, 55% ground ball rate, which is excellent, especially for a fairly high strikeout guy like him. Last year, all the way down to 43, and the fly balls jumped from 32 to 41. Not a formula for uh, continued sustainable success. This guy's expected ERA has been 337 or higher each of the last five seasons. So it's not that he can't get the saves. It's not that he can't be a closer. But he's not this elite closer that's going to really help in your ERA and whip categories. And I know Jose Valverde features prominently in your next column at the BaseballHQ.com site. Yes, uh, each weekend we do the market pulse where we analyze where players are drafted versus where we think we're, they should be drafted. Valverde is going in round nine, and we probably wouldn't touch him till round thirteen when the big secondary closer run hits. But he won't be there for that because most people have grabbed him long before that, which is great because there's lots of other values. Uh, you can get at different points of the draft. And we'll point those out for you in our Market Pulse column on BaseballHQ.com. And, of course, you'll have your Market Pulse commentary later in the show, and you'll be back again next week. Matt, thanks very much for doing this. Love it every week, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Steve Gardner of USA Today and Jason Collette of Rotowire and Baseball Prospectus comes up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, one of the minor league analysts at Baseball HQ. I'm also the co-author, along with Jeremy Deloney, of the 2012 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which is available through Baseball HQ and will be delivered in late January and plenty of time for your 2012 draft prep. The book contains statistical and scouting information on over 1,000 of the best prospects in baseball, along with numerous articles and valuable lists. The book uses all of the invaluable Baseball HQ statistical tools to help you figure out which prospects are likely to have the biggest impact and when they will reach the majors. 
Order the Minor League Baseball Analyst 2012 now at BaseballHQ.com for $19.95 plus shipping and handling. As a special bonus, if you order the analyst directly from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get an online update of all 30 organizational lists in March 2012 and at the same time an online update of the top 50 fantasy prospects. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Last weekend, the labor drafts were held. American League and National League-only versions of the granddaddy of all the experts' drafts were held in Phoenix. And we're very fortunate today to have two of the participants taking part in Baseball HQ Radio. A little later on, we'll have Steve Gardner of USA Today, which sponsors the labor draft. But first, we're going to talk with Jason Collette from Rotowire and BaseballProspectus.com. Jason, welcome to the show. Well, uh, how are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing fine. Thanks very much for asking. And uh, let's start off with the question everybody always asks guys who just came out of draft. How do you think you did? Uh, overall, I think I did pretty well. Uh, I went in with a plan, was able to execute most of it. I uh, really only have uh, two regrets. One of them really wasn't controllable. The other one was just auction dynamics. So, uh, you know, in the end, I, I'm rather, I felt better about it than I did coming out of 2011 Tout Wars, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and uh, what was the plan? You said you had a plan going in. What was it? Yeah, uh, well, the plan was I wanted to uh, spread the risk. I, I wanted to stay away from the biggest bats. I mean, it's nice to have a Pujols. It's nice to have a Miguel Cabrera. But you also pay a premium price for that. So I wanted to get, you know, one guy over $30, another guy over 25 and then I wanted to spread it out from there. I really wanted to try to avoid... Uh, dollar players as much as possible. I usually try to get about three, no more than three. Uh, so I was able to do that. And pitching-wise, uh, kind of same thing. I don't like buying your big aces because I know it costs 20 something dollars to get them. So I wanted to uh, go out and risk, uh, spread that risk around there. And what I did is I went after targeted guys uh, with good uh, dom rates and, and high ground ball rates. And those were the kind of guys I went. And so if you look at my staff, you see a clear pattern there. Yeah, I do, and and you said you wanted a one thirty dollar guy. You ended up with Prince Fielder, which is a nice thirty dollar guy, especially when you look at uh, Pujols at forty one. So it's a nine dollar saving for a pretty similar type of player. Was Fielder a targeted guy for you, or were you just looking for that thirty dollar caliber guy? I was looking for a thirty dollar a thirty dollar caliber guy because I mean I was looking for skills. Names really weren't a big deal except except for catcher. Uh, that was a clear target. But uh, when Fielder came out, I had him projected at thirty three. So when he was a 31 and it was one of the first I think five or six guys in the auction so when he went at 31 I felt comfortable going 32 and then it stopped there so I was happy with that yeah and you got uh, um, BJ Upton is the second guy you said you wanted a 25 to 30 dollar guy BJ Upton's a kind of an interesting pick this year there's lots of people in the online sites and the touts and what have you who are saying this is a going to be a good year for him other people a little leery of the risk especially on the batting average side what tilted you towards accepting bj upton at a 28 dollars price which i'll say looks really nice yeah sure i mean you see a lot of people will talk about oh it's contract year and you know we know there's you know you can find a good contract year and you can find bad contract year players so but for me it, this comes from watching a guy play every day i mean i live in central florida i i see the rays play every day i cover them 30 games a season so i i see 
you know, I, I saw changes that Upton made in his swing to, over the last five weeks. If you go look at his monthly splits, you'll see a difference in his power production towards the last five weeks, and that's not by accident. That's by he changed his swing, widened his base a little more, got rid of that funky ankle twist thing he would do, and got more into lifting his leg and putting it back down and getting through the ball. So you, the, the, the change in production was from a change of process, uh, and that's why I felt really good about him. And this is a guy you know under Joe Madden, he's going to be able to run as much as possible. Joe Madden, by his own description, is, is very Republican with his running style. He lets you run and run and run until you show that you can't handle that uh, responsibility. Uh, so it's 35 steals should be a lock as long as he gets 500 plate appearances and stays healthy. Uh, 40, 45 is even uh, probable, and I think he's a 20-home run guy this year. Geez, when you said he was a Republican guy in his running style, I thought you meant he wanted everybody to go to the right. <laughs> no, he's all, he's, he said Republican, Libertarian. He basically says everybody has their own green light. They do what they do and, until they show they can't handle it. You know, I did a little research to, earlier this year about B.J. Upton. Part of the big success he had in the latter half of last season was when he got put into the two-hole in the, in the batting order. He really took off. Yeah, he's been, uh, you know, Joe Madden, if if you look at lineups, he runs a bunch of different lineups. I think he utilized 135 different lineups last year, uh, some crazy amount of lineups. It's just what he does. Uh, there was a point he had uh, the catcher hit leadoff five times last year. He had uh, Longoria hit leadoff a few times last year. So he just does things, and sometimes people respond to different things. And Upton has hit leadoff for a good chunk of his time with Tampa Bay. He's hit uh, down the eight holes, seven holes. He's had some cleanup. He's done a lot of things. So we'll see how this uh, works out. Uh, but you know, contact-wise, as much as, uh, as when he struggles to make contact, Putting him in a tool is kind of tough. You know, leading off with Desmond Jennings, it, it'll help him out. The the good thing there with with uh, BJ, his natural swing is to go the opposite way. So when you've got Desmond Jennings on first baseman holding him on, it's going to open up a natural hole for BJ. That's where he really likes to put that ball. So it could go the same way. I think anybody who hits in a two hole could be really good for Tampa Bay. Of course, on the other hand, Madden likes to go right, left, right, left, so that might mitigate against. Uh, completely, yes, and that's why I think you'll you might see somebody like Ben Zobers uh, stay up there two hole even with the power, uh, or potentially even Matt Joyce, and that would be really nice. You saw Matt Joyce go for nineteen dollars uh, in, in in the labor draft on Saturday, and it wasn't to me. I mean, this is a guy I've I've owned Matt Joyce in the last three. Uh, Tout Wars drafts, either as reserve or regular player, uh, but he went $19, and as much as I like Matt Joyce in 2012, that price is a little hefty for me to pay unless he's guaranteed 500 plate appearances, and with his struggles against left-handed pitching, um, that's not likely. I have to ask, you had a perfect $180 hitting, $80 pitching split. Was that by design or is just how it worked out? It was actually by design. I went in, uh, I think I had a... Uh, I think I budgeted $82 for pitching, um, so it ended up working out. I, I keep a spreadsheet, so I, I have my balances, my hitting and pitching, and I deduct every time I take from there, uh, so I, I know what I need. But, yeah, that's kind of where I went. And if you look at the overall draft, it, the split was 70.3 to the 29.7. So as a league, it was a 70-30 split. Uh, for that, and that's just something I've been comfortable with. I've gone, uh, I've gone as high as 35% in a draft. It's really this. Looks off, you know how things play out. I uh, I'm able to flex around. I think last year when I went to Tout Wars, I had it set uh, at 68.32 and ended up going uh, 72.28. It just really depends on how the auction goes. 
and you manage to minimize the number of $1 players you grab. John Jaso at catcher is a good get at $1, I think. Alex Cobb could be a real surprise down in Tampa. Scott Downs is a very reliable left-handed relief pitcher in Anaheim. And Kasuke Fukudomi, there's a, there's a real wild card, isn't he? Yeah, I was, I was pretty happy with uh, how the end game played. I typically like, try to stand on that as long as possible because I'd like to be able to get, if somebody else is trying to sneak somebody in through dollar days, I'd like to be able to top them out. Um, and, but what happened, with, what happened there is I had to go in a little earlier than I would have liked because middle infield. Uh, I was trying to get a middle infield. I had J.J. Hardy early, and at 16, I really liked that price. Um, so this was, I was trying to get middle infielders, and they just kept going. Uh, you know, I, I threw out somebody like Trevor Plouffe and $5. I only had three dollars to spend. I tried to get you know this was late in the game. Jamie Carroll, he went. Robert Andino went for five dollars. I couldn't afford anybody, so I ended up with Chris Getz and um, drawing a blank on the other guy, Jeff Keppinger. Jeff Keppinger. I spent. I maxed out on Jeff Keppinger because. It was Keppinger and Getz, and that was it. And I, I like Keppinger because he's going to get his playing time against left-handed pitch because he handles it really well. He's going to qualify at multiple positions because Baden's already said he's going to use them all over the infield. Um, so I, I like paying the max for him, and I had to just because of what was left. And after that, it put me in dollar days, and it, it cost me a, a couple of relief targets. I wanted your colleague Dave Adler took Glenn Perkins. That was a guy that I really wanted instead of Scott Downs because I don't have too much faith in, in Matt Capps. Uh, but it was dollar days, and Dave had the spot on the table before I did. Yeah, and sometimes that's just how it works out. But you got to be pretty happy about getting Mark Melanson at four bucks, considering Andrew Bailey's injury risk, and and Melanson's going to be a decent pitcher in the meantime. Yeah, I was surprised that he only with four dollars. I mean, this is a guy I really liked what he did last year in Houston. We're talking extreme ground ball rate, you know, good strikeout rate, and everything. And, Matt, and Andrew Bailey, when he's healthy, he's really good. But you know that when he's healthy is a is a catchphrase there because it's really tough to figure. He's had he's had his problems. He had him last year. He had him before that. He had him in the minor leagues. So uh, even if he doesn't, even if Melanson doesn't get a uh, shot at saves, he's still going to get a lot of eighth inning work. Uh, and, and with that offense in Boston, there's a chance he could vulture a lot of wins. So we'll see how that goes. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette of Rotowire and Baseball Prospectus. And we're talking about the labor draft, which was held last weekend in Phoenix. Jason, looking at the league outside of your own team, which players were significantly overpriced in your view through the auction process? Um, well, Matt Joyce was one of them at 19. Like I said, uh, you know, he, the, the team said he's making the progress against left-handed pitching, but you look at the numbers that really hasn't shown up yet. And until that does, and if he's going to lose playing time uh, against lefties, it's really tough to justify that $19 price unless Joyce puts up some big power numbers because he doesn't run that much. I mean, he might get the 10 steals, but that's really going to be about where he sits. Uh, so he's going to hit 25 home runs and hit 290 to justify that price. Uh, I was a little surprised that Matt Moore went for more than any other race pitcher. Uh, he went, I'm sorry, went more than James Shields, and I'd rather pay for the you know the experience, the consistency, take away the one outlying year 2010 that James Shields has provided with all the changes in the mechanics. I, I think you're asking a lot of, of him uh, at 20 uh, for Matt Moore at 20 bucks. And lastly, Brett Lawry. Uh, I thought he was phenomenal last year uh, coming up for Toronto, but he went 28 dollars in this, and that's a real hefty price for a rookie with such a short track record, especially when A Rod went for 24. Yeah, that was a little, and then, I'm sorry, one other guy I'm thinking of, uh, Vernon Wells. Jeff Erickson is really high on Vernon Wells this year. Uh, had, I think he paid 16 or $17 for Vernon Wells. Uh, if he can get the Vernon Wells from a few years ago, that's a really good buy. Um, but we've seen what Vernon Wells has done the last couple of years, uh, and it just, it just doesn't justify the dollar bid. 
I was also a little surprised to see Colby Rasmus go for $16, considering all of the trouble he had in Toronto last year with his dad and the coaching, and I don't like the way things are going, and got run out of town in St. Louis on a rail and, and continued to have trouble. He continues to have trouble hitting for average, especially, I don't know, 16 bucks for Colby Rasmus seemed like a bit of a long shot. Yeah, that wasn't even auction dynamics either. That was uh, in the middle. There was still a pretty decent... Uh, outfield talent pool there. I think I remember, I believe I purchased Coco Crisp a few spots after that because, I mean, Rasmus was somebody that intrigued me, but just not at that price. I was thinking, you know, $11, $12, and once they got above that, I just dropped out because it just wasn't something uh, that I wanted to get into. I mean, he's got he's got the raw power. I've seen him hit some just absolute monster shots, uh, and when he's on his game, he looked two years ago, great season, but, you know, now you don't know which guy you're going to get, uh, and for me at 16 bucks, kind of like earlier with Joyce, he's got to do a lot of good things, justify that, because you know he's not going to hit for good average. On the flip side of the coin, Jason, uh, which players do you think got really snabbed at a really good price, besides your own? Uh, yeah, well, I, like I said, Glenn Perkins for a dollar, I think, is great, uh, considering what Matt Caps and the risk he brings along. Uh, you know, if he's able to get that job, that'd be a really good buy. I thought uh, Jeremy Hellickson only going for 13. I know a lot of people are kind of scared off by uh, you know his batting average and balls in play and, and his uh, FIP and all. But I think you know, he had a really good art- local article today where he talked about his goal is to induce weak contact. He doesn't care about strikeouts. If he can get weak contact and let his defense to get the play, that works out real well for him. So I thought that was uh, you know a good buy. I regretted not being able to go an extra dollar. Matt Harrison went for, I believe, 5 or $6. Uh, he was the guy that I was targeting, but I was already out of money by that time for my pitching staff, and I couldn't get into that. Uh, but I think Matt Harrison could be uh, have a breakout year this year. I, I thought he showed some good signs. Uh, there towards the end of the season, and that's somebody that I'm going to hope to target in other AL drafts I'm doing. Overall, when you look at the American League Labor Draft this year, it looks like most of the players are pretty reasonably priced across the board. Yeah, there wasn't really money. I mean, if you look at the overall dollar figures, and I, you know, if you follow me on Twitter at Jason Collette, I tweeted out a link today that has the the bid-by-bid list so you can see when guys went and what they went for. And you'll see, for the most part, everybody was pretty much going right at value. There there wasn't anybody that was super crazy. I mean, I mean, Larry, I thought, again, was a little high, but there was nobody that was you know, terribly crazy. Um, but until you got to the auction dynamics, you got to the end of it, then you saw some things kind of fold out a little bit. Uh, and so you, know, that you have to kind of put that in perspective. It's, it's when guys are bought uh, towards the end that kind of messed that up. But overall, especially, I thought closers were a little suppressed. I mean, Mariano Rivera went for over 20, as he always does, but I don't think any other closer did. I was able to get Joe Nathan at 17, and I think he was one of the four highest closers. Yeah, I was looking at that too. Kyle Farnsworth was barely over ten, if I remember correctly, around thirteen maybe. And uh, Brandon League in Seattle, fifteen dollars. He's a pretty reliable guy. Matt Thornton for Dave Adler, my colleague at BaseballHQ.com, got Matt Thornton for only ten bucks, which is looks like he's going to have the job and could run with it. Yeah, I mean, the good thing with Matt Morton, uh, Matt Thornton, go block out April. Go look at his numbers, his monthly splits. Block out April. He was good. That's the problem. I mean, he, yeah, he's, he's really good against left-handers, so he's getting his splits issue is, is kind of back. So, uh, and Addison Reed's there in the fold too. But Matt Thornton had a really good year from May on, and I, I really I told Dave when he made that buy, I really liked it. It just wasn't something. It wasn't in my budget. I already had Joe Nathan by that point, um, but I, I did like that buy, and I agree with you with Brandon League. I mean, he was really good last year. That's a guy that I picked up for ten dollars last year, uh, and really enjoyed him. And there's already you know you talk to a guy like. Uh, the pitch FX guys, Harry Pavlidis, uh, is, has already looked. 
Brandon Leagues throwing a curveball in camp already. Brandon Leagues never thrown a curveball, so he's pretty much been a sinker slider kind of guy. Now he's adding a curveball into the mix, which is going to be another pitch in his bag to make it. And he's already a tough guy to square up. If he's going to be throwing a curveball at, uh, I think they had it at 79, that's just another thing to make him an effective pitcher. Jason, how can our listeners stay in touch with uh, Labor through your uh, Facebook or Twitter? What do you got for uh, for addresses for people to follow? Sure, a couple you? things. Uh, my Twitter is at Jason Colette. There's two L's and two T's and a silent E there at the end. Um, so I do things all throughout the season. I did things all over this past weekend. And then uh, be writing uh, articles at, at Baseball Prospectus uh, each, mo- each month to update my status in the league. I put an article up today uh, with a complete draft review of my own team and then what I thought of the draft. So that's up there, and uh, that'll be going on all throughout the season. And then, of course, we have uh, the Tout Wars draft in a few weeks. All right, and uh, that's in New York City. I'm in the mixed Tout Wars for the first time. Looking forward to that very much, and I guess I'll see you in New York. Yes, we'll definitely see you there at Foley's on Friday night for the big party. Absolutely. Jason, thanks very much for doing this. I hope we can catch up with you again during the season. Hey, thanks for having me on, Patrick. Anytime. That's Jason Collette of Rotowire and Baseball Prospectus talking about the American League-only version of Labor, which was held last weekend in Phoenix. We were also very lucky to be able to talk with Steve Gardner, the baseball editor at USA Today who organized the Labor Draft and who was a participant in both the American League and National League versions. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. I'm uh, pleased to be here and pleased that uh, we finally got through that Labor Draft weekend. That was, that was uh, an exercise in, uh, in stick-to-itiveness, I have to say. And and you're at the ballpark right now, still in Phoenix, are you not? Yes, I am. I'm going to get to uh, check out a few games here for the the rest of the week. So looking forward to that, and then uh, heading to Florida to to see some more. So it's a, it's a great time of year, especially if you're, you're a baseball fan. I was going to say you have a you have a tough life. <laughs> well, I make the best of it. You know, you live up live it up these a couple of weeks, and then settle in for uh, for uh, an entire season's worth sitting behind the desk and the computer for the most part. So I hear get you. out, I try and enjoy it. Steve, you drafted in the American and National League drafts at Labor. First of all, how did you think your own drafts went? I was pleased. Um, you know, you never really can plan for uh, every contingency. So when those unexpected things show up, and, and we had a lot of those over the weekend, but, um, you know, you just try to, to read and react, and, and hopefully you get a, a solid enough base that, uh, and a healthy enough team that um, you know when things happen during the season, you're you're set up enough to be able to uh, to withstand some of those punches you take, and and still have a team that's good enough to compete when it's all said and done. Well, Steve, I noticed that your teams did take on some injury risk. You took Jose Reyes, Ricky Weeks, Casey Blake in the National League, and and you were the guy who gambled on Carl Crawford for a good price of $23 in the American League. You also had some young player risk, we'll call it, uh, Eric Hosmer and Mike Moustakis from Kansas City, Jesus Montero, and then on the national side, Brian LaHare from the Cubs and Taylor Pasternicki of the Braves. How do you decide what constitutes acceptable levels of risk as far as injury and young player risk? Well, Patrick, I think, you know, in these experts' leagues where everybody is so good and so knowledgeable, you don't really, you don't win the league by just taking standard players and, and a balanced roster. I mean, you have to take some chances. And sometimes that comes in the form of guys who are maybe a little bit injury risk, a uh, little bit of an injury risk. And sometimes it's in guys that maybe haven't proven that they can uh, play on the major league level just yet. So, I think those are kind of things you don't want to take too much risk, obviously, and that's something that the baseball HQ readers and listeners and uh, and folks that follow what you guys do 
are very aware of. You know, you, you've got to spread the risk a little bit. So some of it is okay, um, but you don't want to overburden yourself with that amount. So I try and strike a balance. And, you know, if I see a bargain, I, I thought Jose Reyes at, uh, you know, $29 that I got him for, you know, with shortstop not being a, a very deep position and, you know, him providing stolen base ability, you know, I thought that was a decent price. So, you know, those are the guys. Casey Blake, on the other hand, was one of the end game guys that, you know, you need to fill a position and you need to get somebody. So it depends on the when the guys come up in the draft and what your team needs are. But as I said, I, I like to balance that and and take a few chances because that's where that's where the big profit lies. Your risk management strategy appears to have included not going real big on any single player. Both your AL and NL teams are more balanced than a lot of the other teams in labor this year. In fact, all your players were under $30, including Reyes and Roy Halladay in the National. Felix Hernandez was your top guy in your American League draft at just $27. But on the other side, you only have five $1 guys. Was that uh, a strategy going into draft for you, or is that just the way the cookies crumbled? I, I like to try and avoid the $1 players as much as I can. I, I know there's really there's, there's a whole lot of risk when you go for a, a roster full of $1 players because a lot of times, and more often than not, you're not going to hit a home run. You may not, not even get a, a replacement-level player with, with those $1 guys. So, um, you know, sometimes you'll hit a, 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 on a guy that will give you double-digit return, but the chances of doing that are slim. And I, I like to fill out my roster and not pay, um, not have too many guys that are $1 guys. And so, therefore... You know, you're not digging at the bottom of the barrel where guys could just flame out and not even do anything. So I, I, I don't like to, to go too high. I know in this league, um, a lot of the guys are stars and scrubs oriented. And so you will get guys who will pay top dollar for the Matt Kemp's and the Miguel Cabrera's of the world. And they know that going in. So rather than get into a bidding war with them, I kind of prefer to sit back and you know, kind of cherry pick with some of the guys that are mid-levels that I like. And, and maybe get better bargains there. Well, that's an important point. It's always good to be zagging when everybody else in the, or the majority of other teams in your league are zigging. And if they're all, like you said, if they're all going stars and scrubs, then sometimes playing uh, spread the risks, balance your risks is a, is a really appropriate response. Steve, I was also really interested to note that in your National League team, you had a pretty standard 70-30% dollar split on the uh, hitters and pitchers. But in your American League pitching split, it was 61-39, which was about 9 or 10 points under the league as a whole. And I'm wondering, Again, was that a response to what was going on at the table, or was that a deliberate plan going into the draft? Well, going in, I, you know, I noticed that it seemed like the, the American League was heavy on hitters. You know, if you get Albert Pujols into the league and you get Prince Fielder into the league, it seemed to me like that people would be going after hitters more, and there might be more of an opportunity to make a dent in the pitching staff. And if I could get guys, you know, maybe focus a little bit more on getting a solid pitching staff it might be easier to rack up the standings points in pitching than it would be to compete with what I thought most people would be going after, and that's to get a, a big offense. And uh, so that was kind of by design. I don't know that I was really thinking Felix Hernandez at 27 as, uh, as my top guy. I wasn't really necessarily targeting him, but I got him. And then, you know, Jared Weaver came along and was at 22, and – I felt like I couldn't let him go for that, and so I went 23, and nobody else, nobody else topped that. So I ended up with King Felix and Jared Weaver, and once I had those two guys to, to front my staff, then all of a sudden, hey, 
You know, this is, has the potential to be a really good pitching staff. I've got guys who strike out a ton of batters, you know, put up very good ratios. You know, maybe I can fill it out with, uh, with some pitchers that maybe aren't that kind of level, but, um, but they will be the ones who carry me. And uh, so that's kind of how it worked out for me. In your National League team, Steve, you also grabbed two top closers. You grabbed Craig Kimbrell of Atlanta and Joel Hanrahan of Pittsburgh. Again, part of the plan or reacting to how the draft was shaping up at the time? This was definitely one of the most interesting and the oddest experts drafts that I've done. Certainly the, the weirdest experts auction because, again, tried to price enforce a little bit. I got Roy Halliday for 28, was the most expensive pitcher on the board, and you know, that was a shock to me that he didn't go for more than 30. And once Halliday was there at, thir- at 28, that set the bar for everything else. And nobody wanted to pay more than that. I think Clayton Kershaw went for 26. And, um, you know, everybody was, was bidding less than that, and nobody wanted to go even higher. So would pitching devalued there? And then I-, I thought the same thing with Kimbrell. I thought he would go for a lot more than that. I had him, you know, upwards of 26, 27. And he stopped at 21. So when that happened, um, and Hanrahan as well, the closers just didn't cost as much as, uh, as I thought they would. So I went ahead and, and jumped in where I thought the value was. And uh, it seemed like people hung on to a lot of their money until very late in the draft and then started spending like crazy on guys that you know, really didn't deserve the kind of bidding wars that they ended up uh, generating. Yes, I can imagine that the pitching going for such relatively low prices must have come as a surprise because all off season we've been hearing about how people are more comfortable with with betting higher in fantasy drafts on pitchers or taking them in higher rounds. Even some people talking about Verlander, Halliday, guys like that going in the first round of straight draft type style drafts, and it sounds like that's the expectation you had going in, and it turned out absolutely not to be the case. Yeah, and and you know there's so many good starting pitchers in the National League too. And so, you know, when the, the top pitchers are devalued and that pushes everybody else down, you know, Cole Hamels went for 22, Matt Garza for 19, Madison Bumgarner 19. I mean, those are ridiculous prices. And when people look at the labor draft results when they come out in, in Sports Weekly in a couple of weeks, they're going to say, what in the world are these guys thinking? But it was just the dynamics of the draft room and, and what transpired it, it was a chain reaction, and I thought that was just just fascinating to watch as it unfolded. And, you know, I don't think everybody in the room, or, or maybe anybody in the room, really recognized that until it was almost too late, and, and then that's when they started going on their spending sprees. This is Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. We're talking about the labor draft with Steve Gardner, the baseball editor at USA Today and the organizer of the labor AL and NL drafts this past weekend in Phoenix. Steve, which players besides uh, the two closures that we've already talked about were you really pleased to get at the draft this year? Real solid, good bargain prices. Well, I thought Ricky Weeks ended up being a pretty good bargain. You know, you talk about the injury risk, but still, with second base, you know, not as not as deep as uh, as many of the other positions. I really was happy with all three of my middle infield guys: Weeks at nineteen, Reyes at twenty nine, and Tyler Pasternicki, uh, a starter for Atlanta. You know, unless they go to Jack Wilson. He's going to play the entire year and play every day. I got him for eight dollars, and I thought that was a, a great bargain. He's going to steal bases. He should hit pretty well. Um, and uh, you know, in, in baseball HQ's values, that's a ten dollars savings. So uh, you know, he was an eighteen dollar player in, in the uh, the dollar values there. So I was pleased to get those guys. And then you know, I, I had to fill in different places. I think Shane Victorino twenty five was 
probably market value. But then my other outfielders, J.D. Martinez, um, who's going to hit third for the Astros, it looks like, $14, not bad. Brian LaHare looks like the first base job is his for the Cubs. He's eligible in the outfield and will gain first base eligibility, 12 bucks. Alan Craig coming off an injury. Um, we know what kind of a hitter he is. We saw that last postseason, $11. So, you know, that kind of spread the wealth kind of strategy seems to, you know, those guys fit it. And I was, I was very happy with the, the way that turned out. Across the league, uh, where did you see some big bargains maybe you wish you'd have got on, on either draft? Well, I, I did get into a little bit of a, a mini-bidding war with Eric Carabell for Yonder Alonso, who I wanted a little bit more than LaHare, and I, I really regretted not going. I think Eric got uh, Alonso for 11 or 12. Uh, I think, although you know Petco is, is obviously depresses power, I still think Alonso's got the, the gap power-hitting skills that uh, he's going to be an effective player, so... I was kind of uh, kind of bummed that I missed out on him a little bit in the NL, but um, but otherwise, yeah. If I'd had you know more more foresight, I left eight dollars on the table too in the NL, and it, it just worked that way. Uh, it was interesting. I think a total of thirty-two dollars was left on the table by everybody, all told. So, like I said, it's just it was a strange draft, and and maybe you know going in an extra dollar for a for a first base when I ended up with uh, Adam LaRoche. Um, so uh, maybe you know Brandon Belt or somebody like that, or uh, Michael Kadire went for twenty-seven. You know, I wasn't going to go twenty-eight. Um, somewhere in there, it's just hard to say that the, the wackiness of the uh, of the draft, where to spend the money. Maybe maybe the idea was probably to spend more money on the top guys. You know, the Matt Kemp's and, and the Ryan Braun's who are off the board right at the beginning. But um, once that's done, you can't go back and and undo that. So. Uh, that, that was another part of uh, the interesting evening. Any players who went way higher than you thought they were going to? Yeah, I thought, especially in the NL, when uh, when you get to those guys in the in the middle rounds, um, that uh, you know the the Andre Ethiers twenty four, uh, Martin Prado twenty four, Ian Desmond seventeen, Jose Altuve seventeen. You know that was that was just what was uh, you know shocking to me to see some of those guys go, and with everybody stockpiling their money. Um, that's that's what you get. So uh, that that was interesting, and uh, you know, even Corey Hart for twenty dollars seems like a pretty high price to pay now that we know about his, his knee situation. I didn't know about his knee situation when I bid twenty four just the other week in an experts draft. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, uh, how should how should listeners to this broadcast and fantasy owners everywhere use those labor draft results when they're trying to consider their own draft strategies? Well, I think the AL is much closer to what actual values and and traditionally labor is has been kind of the benchmark for fantasy draft values in in al only and nl only leagues um i, I think in the al we pretty much came close to to what those prices should be um you know top pitchers verlander you know up close to thirty dollars um jacoby ellsbury top outfielder 36 jose batista 35 and the two first basemen, Cabrera and Pujols, at 40. Now, I think those are pretty standard, and, and you can probably use that if you're in a 12-team AL-only league. You can probably go with, with the prices that the, uh, the AL teams ended up paying for those guys. The closers, again, Mariano Rivera, 21 tops out, and then a lot of guys, 15 to 17. So um, you know, I think that's where the AL draft can, can come in handy. But, again, you've got to take the uh, draft dynamics into consideration when you look at what happened in the NL. And if it so happens that a ceiling is set on, you know, maybe it's, it's not pitchers in, in your draft, but it's 
uh, third baseman or middle infielders or something to look at that and react. And uh, if people are saving money in one place or if they're overly spending, you know, to be aware of that and try and adjust your draft strategy on the fly. I think that's what the, um, the most important thing about the labor draft when we see the results and we get the write-ups in Sports Weekly from what the uh, different owners were trying to do and how it succeeded or failed, I think that's where they can become really, really informative to take into your own drafts. And all of that material will be in the Sports Weekly Fantasy Baseball Annual Edition, lovingly called the Leviathan. Steve, uh, when will the Leviathan uh, come out for uh, people to get a, get a look at it as a dead tree edition and online? It will, uh, it will hit the uh, newsstands on the 21st of this month. It's always the third Wednesday of, of the month of March. And we'll have pieces and bits and pieces of it uh, out online about that time, too. But, um, you know, this is one of those things where you like to have the actual hard copy in your hand so that you can look here, there, and compare everything and not, uh, you know, go clicking on links. It's, it's much more friendly for, uh, for fantasy draft owners if you get it in print. Oh, it sure is, and it's a terrific publication. I've been playing this game for years, and I would I would no more go into the draft without my Leviathan than I'd go in without my shirt and pants. I don't think I've been using it forever. <laughs> well, uh, let's hope yes. Uh, let's hope everybody decides to to follow your lead there and, and has all of those. Yeah, well, and especially since we, for most part, we don't want to see that many guys without shirts and pants at our drafts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Thanks very much, Steve. We really appreciate that you took the time. Enjoy the rest of your time in spring training. I sure will, and uh, thanks for uh, letting me be on the show, Patrick. I appreciate it. Steve Gardner is the baseball editor at USA Today and the organizer of the League of Alternative Baseball Reality Drafts this past weekend in Phoenix. You can read Steve regularly in USA Today and at usatoday.com. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Smith, corks one into right down the line. It may go! Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the Market Pulse, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes, and leading off our Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com Minor League expert Rob Gordon telling us about St. Louis first base prospect Matt Adams. The St. Louis Cardinals' Matt Adams is a player to keep an eye on this spring. The 23-year-old Adams isn't your typical can't-miss 5-tool prospect, but he is one of the more polished hitters in the minors. At 6'3", 230 pounds, Adams has good size and plus power. Last year, he hit 32 home runs and drove in 101 for AA Springfield, but Adams is far from a one-dimensional slugger. In 2011, he hit 300 on the year and has decent strike zone judgment. After three years in the minors, Adams' career minor league line now is now 316 batting average, 365 on base percentage, and a very nice 552 slugging percentage. Defensively, Adams isn't going to win any gold gloves, but he has good hands, decent range, and can make all the routine plays. Unfortunately, he's a below-average runner, so first base is really his only option, which for now at least puts him squarely out of the picture in St. Louis. Right now, the Cardinals' plan looks to be Lance Berkman at first base with an outfield of Matt Holliday, John Jay, Carlos Beltran, and Alan Craig but it isn't too hard to see a way in which that dynamic could change. 
Certainly, Beltran and Berkman have proved somewhat injury-prone over the last several years, and Beltran in particular hasn't had over 500 at-bats in a season since 2008. The other possible path to playing time for Adams would be if either Jay or Craig struggles offensively. Most likely, Matt Adams will start the season at AAA Memphis, but he is off to a quick start this spring, going 5-for-12 with a triple, a home run, and 7 RBIs, and is worth stashing away in deep NL-only keeper leagues, as there's an outside chance he could work his way into some playing time in the second half of the season, and certainly into a starting role by 2013. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. During spring, Rob Gordon has organizational reports and other scouting columns, and Jeremy Deloney reports on the top prospects. Rob and Jeremy are working their way through the top prospects by position right now at BaseballHQ.com. During the season, they have prospect updates, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything else you need to keep tabs on these rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about second base value at the top of the draft. One common mistake many fantasy players make is overvaluing positional scarcity. Early in the draft, they reach too high to take a second baseman, shortstop, or catcher because there's less players at that position. Repeatedly, we've told you if you just wait, there's plenty of bargains later in the draft. In the early part of the draft, you want reliable, proven statistics to anchor your squad, more importantly than a scarce position. But in 2012, second baseman at the top of the draft represent as good a value as any throughout the rest of the draft. In the first round, Robinson Cano lasts till pick number 11. He had a 302 average last year, but his expected betting average was 318. That 302 is his lowest average in the past three years. Each of those three years, he's had at least 25 homers, 85 RBIs, 103 runs, and he's had 109 RBIs each of the past two years. In the second round, you have Dustin Pedroia and Ian Kinsler, both, again, proven producers at second base. These are not guys you're reaching for and hoping to produce a new peak. They are proven, top-notch producers. Both were injured in 2010, so we need to just discount that year for a second. Other than that year, Pedroia's hit 296 with at least 15 homers, 20 stolen bases, and 102 runs scored. If you draft Pedroia, you're going to need to get some RBIs somewhere else. Similar with Ian Kinsler, who's also batted at the top of the batting order. He's been 30-30 in 2009 and 2011 with 101 runs and at least 77 RBIs on average. In 2011, his low batting average, which has always been the wart on Kinsler, was a result of 24% hit rate. He actually had a 286 expected batting average, and over the last three years, his eye ratio has been rising each year, meaning he's making better contact and being more patient at the plate. So in 2012, at second base, take those top-tier proven second basemen when they come to you in the draft, instead of having to wait as you've had in past years. For the Market Pulse of Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about Adam Dunn and the late careers of bigger players. On Thursday, Adam Dunn hit a home run and drove in four during the White Sox Cactus League game against the Rangers. Hmm. I wrote about Dunn about a month ago but he's still a popular topic of conversation. 
He recently went for $16 in the labor experts draft, which I think is a high watermark thus far. In most auctions, he's barely crossing over into double-digit territory. This is a player who was a consistent mid-20s commodity for a decade. One incredibly bad season at age 31 has taken the wind out of his sails. But I've been hearing a lot about this unprecedented plummet, this record-setting plunge off a cliff. It's as if no player has ever taken a dive before. Well, that's not true. While Dunn's season was a stark departure from the consistency he has shown over the years, it is not unprecedented for a player in his early 30s to suddenly lose it. In fact, we can learn a lot from history. Two-time MVP and seven-time All-Star, Dale Murphy was a consistent 30-plus homer near 300 hitter for eight years in the mid-1980s. Though 1987 was an admittedly high offense year, in 88, at age 32, his productivity dropped from 44 homers to 24 homers and his batting average from 295 to 224. For the remaining six years of his career, his homer power never surpassed 24 again and his batting average remained about 50 points off his earlier levels. From 1987 to 91, Howard Johnson averaged 31 homers and a batting average around 260. In 1992, at age 31, his power output plummeted to 7 and his average to 223. He never hit more than 10 homers or batted higher than 238 again, and his career ended three years later. Over the seven-year period, 1990-1996, Cecil Fielder, yeah, Prince's dad, averaged 37 homers per year. In 1997, at age 32, he dropped to 13 homers in an injury-shortened season. He hit 17 homers the following year and was out of baseball after that. More recently, from age 21 to 29, Andrew Jones averaged 35 homers and a batting average around 270. When he turned 30, his B.A. plummeted to 222 with 26 homers, and in the four years since, he's become a part-time player, never seeing more than 17 homers and always looking up at a 250 batting average. Sometimes we classify these occurrences as the natural progression of old player skills large-framed players, big power, good batting eye, and sharp declines in their early 30s. But only Fielder really fits that description with this group of players. Otherwise, it's classic, really. Think back to the large players of yesteryear. Frank Howard hit 44 homers at age 33, 26 at age 34, 10 at age 35, and was out of baseball a year later. Boog Powell hit 297 with 27 homers at age 33, 215 with nine homers the following year and was out of baseball a year after that. So should we be discouraged about Adam Dunn's prospects this year? He's a big guy, 6'6", 287 pounds, big power, good batting eye, 32 years old. While the above players have been somewhat cherry-picked, what they do show is that some players do hang on at least another year or two or three before calling it a career. Now, Now, Not saying that Dunn's career is near its end, 2012 will be telling, but his long-term prospects are probably not optimistic. I think we've seen the last of 40 homer seasons. It's even possible we've seen the last of 30 homer seasons. 
BaseballHQ.com's current projection is 20 homers and a 225 average. I might go to 25 to 30 homers and a 240 BA on the high end. But Thursday's dinger was a good start in any case. I guess we'll see. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly fanalytics column that appears every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about draft radar for pitchers, always one of his most popular preseason columns. Ron discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday in the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also brings his master notes here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of March the 10th and show number 8 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Please tell your friends about our show and take a second to go down to iTunes and give us those five stars. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Steve Gardner of USA Today and Jason Collette of Rotowire and Baseball Prospectus, two labor drafters who really filled us in on the thinking that went on there, some of the draft trends you might be wanting to pay attention to. Steve and Jason are great guys and terrific fantasy players, and I was glad to have them on the show. Thanks also to our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator, as always, was the Hall of Famer, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week on BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ, with his preseason injury roundup of first baseman. Stephen Nickrand and Doug Dennis have their sleeper columns about starters and bullpens. And Alex Becky evaluates the top five teams in each of the traditional 5x5 head-to-head hitting categories. Plus, we'll have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, and buyer's guides. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com appears every Tuesday. I'll have batting sleepers this week and a roto strategy piece about dumping the auction on the site soon. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.